Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Hello, tried and true listeners. This is Scott Parkin, your co-host of Green and Red Podcast. And today we have a very special episode. Today is the 50th anniversary of uh, Kent State in Kent, in Kent, Ohio, where four students at the Nanny War protests were killed by the Ohio National Guard. Uh, today, uh, we'll be talking about that. Um, I am joined by my co-host, Bob Bizenko, who is a professor of history at the University of Houston. Uh, he's author of Masters of War in Vietnam and the Transformation of American Life. And we're really looking forward to talking about this. Uh, we've been prepping for this episode a lot. Bob? Uh, thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm here actually in Ohio. If I got in my car right now, I'd probably be at Kent State in about 40, 45 minutes tops. So uh, if you, grow up around here this is part of our kind of cultural heritage everybody knows about kent state we've all been there i had a lot of friends who went to school there and i visited them and so um it's the 50th anniversary of it right now which is getting a lot of uh, publicity in this area probably nationally actually and uh given what's going on right now in america we saw these really horrendous sites this week of these um really frightening kind of Gutless worms in places like Michigan trying to storm the state house with guns, and you know nothing was done to them. Whereas, you know, students in Kent, Ohio, were were shot, gunned down, and indiscriminate fire uh, by the National Guard. So it's 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 timely as as well as being historically important. Um. The, the story of Kent State actually begins far away in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. This was kind of the precipitant for it. Um, Cambodia had been a neutral country in the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, its leader, uh, Prince Nordam Sihanouk, had tried to remain neutral as much as possible. But uh, the northern Vietnamese uh, were using parts of Cambodia for the Ho Chi Minh Trail to get supplies into the south. And they also used a port at Sihanoukville as an arms depot. And the United States had been putting pressure on Sihanouk for a long time to stop any kind of, you know, movement through Cambodia for uh, the, the uh, Democratic Republic of Vietnam and, and its forces. And Sihanouk didn't want to get involved. So in, in March of 1970, the United States uh, engineered a coup and installed a right-wing politician, a client named Lon Knoll in power. And what that did was give them now a green light uh, to do something that Nixon and others had wanted to do for a long time. And that was to go after uh, a group called COSVN, C-O-S-V-N, which was an acronym for the Central Office, I'm sorry, um, the, uh, yeah, Central Office of South Vietnam. Uh, According to Americans, and Nixon was obsessed with, with this, as well as the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Forces, Admiral John McCain. This was also his pet project. Nixon and McCain were convinced that Cosvin was kind of what they called a, uh, a bamboo pentagon. This was the brain center 
for all Vietnamese operations. And for years, uh, they had been trying to find Cosman because they call, you know, believed that this was the way that the North, uh, Von Nguyen Zap and Phan Van Dong and the rest of them were coordinating the war in the South for the Viet Cong, for the People's Liberation uh, uh, Army, um, and for the Pavan, the, the main army. And, and so this is where, this is where like Nixon was alleging that there were like Viet Cong bases in Cambodia. Well, more than bases. I mean, this big physical headquarter, right? Ah, uh, okay. I mean, it was like, no, they thought it was a, like the Pentagon. It was, they, they made, that was their, their frame of reference, the Pentagon. And they've been targeting for a decade. I mean, there were clearly operations going on out of Cambodia, but it was literally guys in thatched huts who were constantly on the run because from the mid sixties on, they were getting targeted. They were getting bombed. There were B-52 attacks but the U.S., like they fought the whole war, thought you could just attack one big thing. It's like World War II. They were fighting, you know, like, oh, we can just attack one thing, you know. And McCain was really big on this. Uh, in 1965, nearly 400 warplanes attempted to wipe out Cosman. No effect because the command could run. It could get out of the way. B-52 attacks daily. And so by uh, now that now that with Sihanouk out of the way and Law Nolan power, they could they could finally go after this central office of South Vietnam. That was their fantasy. And so on April 30th, uh, Nixon went on TV that night to announce what he called a, an incursion, not an invasion of Cambodia to go after the central office of South Vietnam. And he uttered those famous words, if when the chips are down, the world's most powerful nation, the United States of America, acts like a pitiful, helpless giant, the forces of totalitarianism and anarchy will threaten free nations and free institutions throughout the world. Nixon had run as a peace candidate, peace with honor. He had actually withdrawn about 200,000 troops, but now he was expanding the war into another country with ground troops. And so was this, you know, we hear a lot about like Nixon and, and Kissinger's sort of like grand strategies to, to uh, kind of take, take an offensive an offense away from the uh, North Vietnamese. And so was this sort of part of that grand strategy or they just do this sort of haphazardly? Because when I think about like what, what the Trump administration would do is they would do it and then like, oh yeah, maybe that was a bad idea or, or whatever. But like, was, I mean, was, was, was this a little bit more planned? Well, yeah. I mean, they've been, they've been thinking about it for five, six years. I mean, Johnson, McKay, they, they aren't, I mean, it was, but it was haphazard and it didn't exist, you know, really bad intelligence there. You know, they, they, the, the Vietnamese communists had operatives everywhere. I mean, they had them in the, in the government of South Vietnam. So, uh, but the idea that you could go in there and just destroy like some kind of infrastructure and, you know, decapitate the Vietnamese was ridiculous. So in that regard, it was, it was a Trump-like operation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, found that out very quickly. Um, you know, and then it, it, the, the effect at home was catastrophic. I mean, it just, you know, uh, Campuses especially erupted the next day because uh, they've been told, you know, Nixon, remember campaigned as the peace candidate, peace with honor, a secret plan to end the war. And he had withdrawn troops. Um, part of it too, and there are a couple different ideas about this. You know, one is like Frank Snepp, who was a CIA agent, called it the decent interval. Like the US knew it was gonna lose, but it wanted some time, you know, to like kind of in between like 1960, 1968 was also a year of a, of, a, of a massive economic calamity, speaking of you know, contemporary times. 
So it was clear by 1968, the U.S. wasn't going to win the war in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive in this massive gold and balance of payments crisis made that clear to the ruling class. But Nixon wanted some time in between, you know, to kind of look, look, make it look like he fought. And I think also part of it was they knew they were going to lose and they wanted to destroy the other side as much as possible and make it impossible uh, uh, for them to rebuild. Um, but the impact was catastrophic. And Nixon kind of knew that as he prepared the speech. Uh, he was talking to his daughter, uh, Julie uh, Nixon Eisenhower now, who was a senior at Smith College, and he said, it's possible that the campuses are really going to blow up after this speech. So he, he anticipated that. Um, public opinion actually supported the invasion, and that's a whole other story. But outside of Tet, actually, there was generally decent support for the Vietnam War. This idea that they were undermined at home is, is another myth. Uh, but students at over 1,300 campuses went out the next day, starting on May 1st. Uh, 536 campuses were shut down completely. Uh, 51 never came back. They closed for the semester. In California, the governor of California, I'm sure you know who that is. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan shut down, the, shut down the entire state university system. Uh, Pennsylvania did the same. Um, students went out all over. And in Ohio, uh, they went out at Ohio State, Ohio University, but the the, the place that everybody would come to know would be at Kent State. Uh, Kent is a working class community. It's not far from Cleveland and Youngstown and Akron and Canton. So this is part of the industrial Mahoning Valley, the, the industrial Midwest at the time. Um, Kent State's a different place. It's not Berkeley. It's not Columbia. It's not Ann Arbor. It's working class kids. Um, there had not been a big tradition there of, of political protest, of anti-war protest. Um, it wasn't a bunch of elite students. These are, you know, kind of middle-class, working-class students. Um, on May 1st, they held a vigil, uh, uh, and they got together and made plans to have a big, that was a, a, the same, a, the calendar runs the same as this year. May 1st was a Friday, May 4th was a Monday, which is the same as, as this year. Um, that night, uh, police went out to these students having a vigil, peaceful vigil, uh, they had words, and the mayor declared a state of emergency and asked the governor, James Rhodes, uh, to send help. Uh, Rhodes is a, is a well-known person in Ohio political history. He served as governor four terms. He had two terms. He was, you know, you, you, there was a two-term limit, but then I don't know if they changed the rules. I don't remember. Or he just he, he served another two years, two terms after that. Hardcore, right-wing, uh, you know, uh, really kind of reactionary guy. He was also running uh, in the Republican primary for the Senate in the spring of 1970 against the incumbent Robert Taft, who compared to Rhodes was more moderate for, for sure. Is that Robert Taft who was known as Mr. Republican or is that the yes. son? No, not his son. That was his son. Yeah. The Taft family, you know, uh, I don't think there are any Tafts right now in, in state government in Ohio, but if not, that's probably the first time in, you know, a century. This is William Howard Taft, Robert Taft. So, Right. So, uh, you know, it's like they're like the Kennedys of Ohio. And um, and Rhodes was running to the right of, of Taft in the in the primary. So one thing uh, it's always like reading and prepping for this is that at, on Kent State, there had actually been an anti-war campaign for about a year trying to get the ROTC off campus, which also sort of like played into this as well. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was a target everywhere. When the decade began, you know, when John Kennedy was president, there were over 200,000 
uh, college students were involved, enrolled in, in ROTC programs. It was mandatory some places, like at Ohio State, I think it was mandatory. Texas A&M, where my family went. Everyone, yeah, yeah. Everyone had to do ROTC. Yeah, no, I think they did at Ohio State, too. And uh, by the end of the decade, it was below, it was below a third of that. It was like around 70,000. And yeah, that had been a target all over. But it, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it, it, well, as we'll see, it became far more than that. Yeah, there had been campaigns to get rid of ROTC all over. And Kent State did have that. But, I mean, it, again, it's not like a Columbia. It's not like Berkeley. It's not like Ann Arbor, you know, Penn, anything like that. It's, 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 a, it's a commuter school. You know, on the weekends, everybody heads back home. Um, so it's, it's very different in that regard. Uh, there's a, a, there are a couple of works on, on working class colleges, uh, you know, Vienna, anti-war protests at working class colleges. And it's a different dynamic. Um, you know, at a lot of these places, the cops, there was a real class distinction. I mean, like at a place like Columbia or, uh, or Berkeley, um, the cops, you know, kind of saw these elite college kids, you know, and they kind of enjoyed going in there and messing with them or even, you know, beating them up or whatever. Uh, so um, uh, the, um, you know, I can't say it was a little bit different. So anyway, they asked Rhodes for help on, on May 2nd. Rhodes mobilized the National Guard and sent them to Kent State. The students were holding a vigil. Um, that night, uh, there are ROTC all over the place. There are rumors all over the place. The National Guard arrived in Kent. Uh, ROTC was a frequent target. When the National Guard arrived, the ROTC building was on fire and it, and it burned down. The next day, Rhodes gave an unhinged press conference. And I think we're gonna play Part of that, we're going to play uh, uh, some clips from it. Uh, he went. Uh, he went to Kent. He was at the, I think, the firehouse in Kent State, and he went into a, 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 a press conference where he went into some really ugly invective about the students' words that you know are kind of now mentioned in pretty much every book about this. And I think Scott's going to going to play uh, a bit of it. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah, sure. We're going to comment right. on some of it. I think. Let me know if it works. Uh, the city of Kent, especially probably the most vicious form of campus-oriented violence yet perpetrated by dissident groups and their allies in the state of Ohio. For this reason, most of the dissident groups have operated within the campus. This has moved over where they have threatened and intimidated merchants and people of this community. Now it ceases to be a problem of, of the colleges in Ohio. This now is the problem of the state of Ohio. And I want to assure you that we're going to employ every force of law that we have under our authority, not only to get to the bottom of the situation here at Kent, on the campus, in the city, and we have asked the complete cooperation of the district attorney of the federal government because federal supplies were burned and destroyed in the ROTC building. And these people, after we can find them, after a complete investigation, will be turned over these people. to the federal government. We've asked the county prosecutor for a complete and comprehensive investigation. And there's some people now out on probation that there has been a strong word to the fact that they have participated in this. Now, we're going to put a stop to this for this reason. The same group that we're dealing with here today, and there's three or four of them, they only have one thing in mind, that is to destroy higher education in Ohio. And if they continue this, and continue what they're doing, they're going to reach their goal for the simple reason. 
that you cannot continue to set fires to buildings that are worth five and ten million dollars because you cannot get replacement from the High General Assembly. And last night, I think that we have seen all forms of violence, the worst. And when they start taking over communities, this is when we're going to use every part of the law enforcement agency of Ohio to drive them out of Kent. We're going to make two recommendations to the High General Assembly. Now, we've had this at Miami, in Oxford, Ohio, also at Ohio State University. We had 32 police officers injured and a couple very severe. We have the same groups going from one campus to the other. And they use a university, state-supported, but the taxpayer will have as a sanctuary. And in this, they make definite plans of burning, destroying, and throwing rocks at police and at the National Guard and the Highway Patrol. We're asking the legislature that just, any just person pause it really quick. throwing a rock. It's, it's actually really, it's really interesting uh, similarities to today where they talk about like small group of people who go from place to place sort of like agitating this thing because um, that is like something like even like doing like anti-fossil fuel, anti-pipeline work is like the, when the CEOs talk about the people who are resisting the Dakota Access Pipeline or the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, it's always like the same group of people who just travel from place to place causing trouble and agitating. It's, a, it's interesting how that never really changes. Yeah, no, and, and, and the rumor, there were wild rumors floating <clears throat> all around Kent, which were kind of typical if you've even looked at documents, you know, from the White House. Um, you know, the, they're communists, right? Um, there are outsiders. These aren't Kent students who would never do that. Uh, they're going to put LSD in the water supply. Uh, you've got, you know, it's weird. They have like, you know, black, uh, Hell's Angels and Black Panthers are there at the same time, you know, stuff like that. So, there, there was one story about a, an a anti-war protester giving an apple to a National Guardsman and they were told not to eat it because they, they were injecting LSD in the apple, <laughs> yeah. like they did back east. No, right. It's it's this incredible uh, alarmism and, and this idea to, to, you know, attach it to some kind of broader uh, conspiracy because, you know, good students would never do that. So, yeah. yeah. The, God bless our vast left-wing conspiracy. Yeah, if we were half the size of, of uh, what, what they, they, they claim we are. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when he says the most vicious form of campus-oriented violence, you know, and yeah. um, then, you know, they, there were no, no one was ever arrested even for, for burning down the, uh, the ROTC building. Right. So, uh, and there, you know, there were people from outside the community on campus, but um, ROTC buildings were targeted everywhere. So, uh, you know, it would be almost kind of an I am Spartacus moment, I think, if they tried to figure out who did it, you know, because there were countless numbers of people, you know, who were really kind of uh, fed up with that whole thing. Yeah, my hit play. Sure. Brick or stone at a law enforcement agency or high a sheriff, policeman, highway patrol, national guard becomes a felony. And secondly, we're going to ask for legislation that any person in the administrative side or as a student, if these people are convicted, whether it's a misdemeanor or felony, participating in a riot, they're automatically dismissed. There's no hearing no recourse, and they cannot enter another state university in the state of Ohio. We are going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms. And as long as this continues, higher education in Ohio is in jeopardy. And if they continue to give permissive consent 
they will destroy higher education in this state. And I would like for, um, we were very fortunate last night, we had 700, 700 National Guard in this area on the trucker strike. Had they not been here, there would have been 14 or 15 other burnouts, and I'm talking about buildings. And it was just uh, through the good fortune that the other incidents happening parallel with this and that we had here the county prosecutor, the mayor, the chief of police, and the and the uh, fire chief, and every law enforcement agency here have been very cohesive in this. And I want to congratulate all of them. They've done a great job. Everybody here, the city attorney, everybody here, the judicial system, all of them have done a good job here. But they're limited. And there has to be some way of getting some subsidy for these people to fight, and these people just move from one campus to the other and terrorize a community. They're worse than the brown shirt and the communist element and also the night Riders and the vigilantes. They're the worst type of people that we harbor in America. And I want to say that they're not going to take over a campus. And the campus now is going to be part of the county and the state of Ohio. There's no sanctuary for these people to burn buildings down of private citizens, of business in the community, then run into a sanctuary. It's over with in Ohio. You know it's, it's like a proto-Fox News going on there with James Rhodes. Yeah, and, and that's generally kind of the money quote, right? Uh, they're, worse, they're worse than the brown church and communist element, and the night riders and the vigilantes are the worst type of people that we harbor in America. And then I think that we're up against the strongest well-trained militant revolutionary group that has ever assembled in America, right? Uh, so, I mean, obviously, it's incredibly hyperbolic. It's, it's alarmist. It's fear-mongering of the worst type. And, um, you know, ironically, the students on, on May 3rd, on that Sunday, went to campus to start, like, kind of cleaning up. You know, they were kind of, like, just, you know, it was cathartic, uh, you know, whatever, kind of try to ratchet down the emotions. Um, so even though they went to, down there to help clean up, you know, uh, after the events of May 2nd and the, and the fire at the ROTC. And, you know, they, you know, when the National Guard showed up, that was provocative. And so, yeah, there were clearly skirmishes where people were throwing, you know, bottles and stuff and yelling and screaming at them always at, at a distance. Um, so on May 3rd, on that Sunday, the mayor declared a curfew. Uh, uh, however, uh, at 8 p.m. that night, um, students showed up for another vigil and the National Guard used tear gas to disperse them. Uh, they went to another part of campus where they had a sit-in. Uh, the Guard began physically forcing them back and even bayoneted some of them. So tensions were high. Uh, the next day was May 4th, which was the day that um, the students had, had uh, planned on May 1st to have a larger rally that was supposed to be held at noon. That morning, university officials went out with 12,000 leaflets saying that it had been canceled uh, they, you know, they, they sent the National Guard out. The, the students told the National Guard essentially to go fuck themselves. Um, they, you know, they gave an order to disperse uh, and the students rejected it. And so the Guard started using tear gas. Uh, you've probably seen the photos. The wind was blowing the other way. These National Guard, I mean, they're working class people. Uh, you know, they, they had been uh, it had been a busy spring. They had been at a tornado. Well, no, they had been, there was a tornado or some, some kind of natural disaster about a month before that. There had been, a, Rose alluded to, a trucker strike. And, uh, and I read that, that actually in the trucker strike that the 
the people were snipers were shooting at the national guard like sniping at them yeah i mean truckers are far more badass than college students yeah exactly so, uh, yeah it's a far more dangerous situation than then and then and, and uh, you know and by you know you can imagine what the state of the national guard is in 1970 also i mean you know like i said rotc had been kind of ravaged so um, you're dealing with kind of, you know, tin soldiers, right? That's where kind of he got the line from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when they, when they launched the tear gas, the wind was blowing, but came back in their direction. Um, and, you know, they, they, they wore gas masks. Some students were getting the tear gas canisters and lobbing them back. It, it, was, it was pretty ugly. Um, then the National Guard started marching on, you know, kind of trying to disperse them kind of, you know, kind of very aggressively, uh, they didn't know the campus. The students simply went another direction. The guard found itself. They kind of laid siege to themselves. They marched toward an area that was fenced in. And so they had to turn around and come back. And that's when around 1230 in the afternoon, things broke loose. Um, a, uh, a sergeant in the guard fired a pistol into the crowd. And then um, the numbers vary. The official data says that 67 shots were fired in 13 seconds. Reporters, including New York Times reporters, said that the, the shooting lasted for over a minute. Uh, they could they found evidence of 67 rounds of ammunition. Uh, who knows how long the, the volley went on. 29 of the 77 guard admitted to firing their weapons. Um, and this is the rough part, right? Uh, four people were killed. And, and nine were injured. It's, it's hard to talk about this. Um, you know, the 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 uh, the people killed, and then it's worth mentioning names. Was uh, there was a woman, Sandy Lee Scheuer, who was twenty. She was not participating in the protest. She was walking to class, and she was shot from a distance of three hundred ninety feet away by an M1. Uh, Allison Krauss, who's probably the best known. She was an honor student at Kent State. Um, she was shot from 330 feet away. Uh, her sister, Laura, was a pretty well-known peace and justice activist who, along with Bill Kunstler's daughter, formed a uh, kind of a truth and justice uh, commission on Kent State and very active. She'll be there uh, at Kent State for the 50th anniversary. Uh, Jeffrey Miller, who was protesting, and he was friends with Sandy Scheuer and Allison Krauss. He was the closest. He was shot from 265 feet away. You've seen that famous photo that won the Pulitzer Prize. There was a 14-year-old runaway on campus that day, and she's kneeling and shrieking, and that was Jeff Miller. And then um, maybe the most ironic was uh, Bill Schroeder, William Schroeder. Uh, He was going to class. He was caught in the crossfire. He was an ROTC scholarship winner, and he was killed from a range of 382 feet so, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath, actually, um, people blamed the, the students. There was a national poll, 58% blamed the students. Rhodes actually picked up momentum and almost defeated Taft uh, in, the, uh, in the primary. Um, the students were shot all from, you know, these vast distances. And so the idea that, you know, they had it coming, they were throwing rocks is, is utterly absurd. Um, you know, you'd have to have, I don't even know if you have major league baseball players arm would be able to throw a rock 382 feet. Uh, so it, it had turned ugly and this was really terrifying. You know, the war had come home. These are middle-class white kids. You know, I'm pretty sure all 13 
uh, of the of the, uh, the the student shot uh, were, and um, you know, it kind of showed that the ruling class will destroy whoever gets in its way or whoever they even think gets in its way. Um, you know, Nixon had called them bums who were blowing up the campuses and offered no sympathy. No, it's very much like Trump, right? No words of sympathy. Uh, Spiro Agnew said the killings were predictable and that the campus protesters were part of a psychotic and criminal element in the society. J. Edgar Hoover, you know, if you don't know who he is, look him up. Very sensitive, um, very sensitive figure in yeah. American history. He said that uh, he told that one of those women killed was nothing but a whore anyway. So this is the way they responded to. And, you know, I, I, I uh, like I said, this is part of our kind of cultural heritage in this area. And it's still, you know, people get angry. I mean, there's still, I've seen people argue. I've argued over it. Um, so there was this real kind of smear campaign going on. But what it did was really kind of blow up America. The next day at Ohio State, uh, Ohio State shut down for the rest of the semester. A high street, which is the main place in Ohio State, was just filled with students. I know people who were part of the Ohio State strike. Uh, the famous football coach, Woody Hayes, uh, went out to high street to try to get, because a lot of football players were participating, to try to drag them out. Um, so, you know, uh, the campuses kind of blew up after that. And there was this, one of the scarier moments, actually, in, in I think contemporary American history, there was this real fear uh, that, you know, if they could send the National Guard out to shoot students at Kent State, then, then who knows, you know, what they were capable of doing. Um, that following week, weekend on May 9th, uh, there were, uh, on the Saturday, kind of an impromptu protest. Over 100,000 people went to, uh, uh, to D.C. Uh, Nixon uh, decided to show he was a person of the people, and he went out to talk to them late at night. And he said, it's the famous Lincoln Memorial visit. Yeah, the famous Lincoln. Lincoln. And he talked about football and he, you know, he was just rambling. Um, protests and violence continued. Um, there are also a couple people there who came, came to be, you know, are better known now. Uh, one of the students at Kent State on May 4th was Chrissy Hind, who would go on to form the Pretenders. She was really good friends with Jeff Miller. Um, another was uh, Gerald Casal who helped form Devo. Devo was a Kent State band. The term devolution came out of what they saw uh, on May 4th. And um, Dilo was good friend, or I'm sorry, Casal uh, was good friends with both Jeff Miller and Allison Krauss. And uh, uh, Chrissy song Revolution was actually about uh, Kent State. So, um, you know, and they've talked about it a lot since then. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, what happened you know, especially what's going on today, I think is, is really critical. Another thing, one thing I want to say about that, and then we can kind of broaden it to talk about some other things, because this is kind of gets lost. But on May 14th, there was another shooting on campus that most people don't really hear much about. Uh, and that was at Jackson State College at the time in Mississippi, which was a historically black university. It's now Jackson State University, it's a historically black college. Um, there had been increasing friction in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, among the students and law enforcement, not surprisingly. Um, there were claims, again, that, you know, black students were throwing rocks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then a rumor spread around campus that a local politician named Charles Evers, whose brother had been Medgar Evers, who had been killed, you know, by, uh, by the Klan in 1962, in, in, uh, um, 
there have been rumors that Charles Evers and his wife had been killed. And so a lot of students went out into the street. Uh, a dump truck was set on fire, probably not by a Jackson State student. Uh, the police were called in. The students responded by throwing stuff at them. And they opened fire. And uh, over 400 bullets uh, were fired into one of the halls. And they killed a, a junior at Jackson State and a high school senior who was visiting at the time. And in both of these places, I think it's worth noting, uh, the story was the same, that a sniper had opened fire. Um, it's like, you know, when cops always say, well, he was reaching in his waistband. Uh, that's, that's kind of like they teach you in Cop 101, say, was, well, they, the sniper story was in the 70s. There was always a sniper. It's the unofficial class at the police academy. Right, right. And so... Um, Off the books. Right, right. And so Jackson State didn't get anywhere near the, the notice of Kent State, but... Uh, you know, it was kind of part of that, that mood. But I think the, the, the juxtaposition is important because it shows, you know, that, you know, obviously at Jackson State, you have these, this long history of racial violence in the South, in Mississippi, but in the North, in Ohio, you know, um, you know the, the guard opened fire on, on, you know, white middle-class, working-class kids, and, um, and people supported it. Uh, Rhodes' political fortunes improved. 58% of the people in the poll blamed the students. So the state has um, an incredible ability to uh, uh, use not just violence, but also then get the public to support uh, what they do. So, um, you know, by May of 1970, um, the United States was in a wider war now in Cambodia, uh, which would, you know, if you want to take it further out, that's what created the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge was this small splinter group until the coup and the American uh, invasion. That's what made the Khmer Rouge get become credible because they could they could you know hold this mantle of anti-Americanism now, uh, and in and and impose law and law. Um, and at home, the the country was you know probably as frazzled as it had been in you know who whenever. And you know even nowadays when people talk about it's bad right now. I mean, there's no way you can polish this, but um, it's not. You know, there are other times in American history, and, and I think. That, that period, like from like 1968 to 1970, is kind of like that. It was it was pretty scary. Yeah, you know it's interesting, you know, talking about the sort of like public opinion around Kent State. Fifty eight percent blame the students. Uh, I think eleven percent blame the the National Guard. But you know, just doing some reading the last couple of days on this, uh, the just the, like the attitude in Kent about the students after the shooting was is just like amazing like they were like kind of proud that it happened like four down many more to go uh one guy was quoted as saying is like i wish they'd shot all of them and the reporter who asked him about said three of your sons are at the march and he's like well they if they were there they deserved whatever they got yeah. and it's just like that's the sort of like you know we talk a lot today about you know, Trump's 30% or 40% or whatever, and how they're just like kind of fed this, this sort of like rhetoric and they just buy it hook, line and sinker. And that's why these idiots are storming state capitals with guns. But like the, you know, this is just like, that's just a continuation of what we've already, what we've seen for a long, long time, for centuries. That, and, that's so important to, yeah. to, to say yeah, that you brought that up because you know, there is this sense of like, don't normalize Trump, or we've never seen anything like this before. And I've seen liberals put memes out, you know, like celebrating Reagan and, 
you know, remember Reagan in, in Berkeley, he said, if there's going to be a bloodbath, let it begin here, you know, at People's Park. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this, you know, I mean, I'm not uh, Pollyannish or optimistic, but the level of resistance today is far exceeds anything that was going on in the 60s and 70s, you know. Um, uh, so, but no, I mean, uh, Trump fall, I mean, Trump is crude and vulgar. Although, you know, like, listen to Rhodes' speech there. That's a Trump speech. Yeah. You know, they're, they're blouse shirts and they're blowing these bombs, blowing up campuses and, uh, you know, and, and J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, you know, Trump is a rookie compared to Hoover. Rhodes talking about students who get caught committing a felony. There, yeah. There'll be no, like, trial. They'll just yeah, be yeah. caught. Of, yeah. Like, yeah. no judicial process. Like, what if they just happen to, I mean, sounds like at least two of the students who were shot just happened to be passing by and they were caught in a crossfire. So legally, if people are caught in a crossfire, they get kicked off campus because they're too close to a situation. Well, like one, of them, one of them was an ROTC student. He was yeah. on ROTC scholarship at yeah. Street. Yeah. No, at Rhodes actually uh, tinkered with declaring martial law, and I don't know who talked about that, you know, for the whole state. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I think that's, that is important because – you know, what we're seeing today is, is, is horrendous and, and terrifying, right? But um, it's not, this is America, you know, and I think we're seeing this veneer, this bullshit about American exceptionalism is, is finally, you know, kind of being, falling away. A lot of people who bought into it before are no longer, you know, are starting to see it's, it's just not there, right? Um, you know, when you have, uh, you know, U-Hauls with 60 corpses in them, in New York City. I mean, that's that's a third world country. That's a failed state. Mass graves. Yeah, yeah. And so, but but stuff like this, you know, um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I, it's certainly feasible that a governor would send the guard out to shoot people, you know, like refusing to go to the meat processing plant or whatever. I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, I think finding the U-Haul is decomposing with the decomposing bodies next to funeral homes because they don't have any places. I think that's going to be a drop in the bucket to what we hear from, like that's New York. So that's going to be like a really, there's a lot of media focus there, but sooner or later, we're going to start hearing way worse stories coming out of like the Southern States or the Midwest. I mean, I think this is just the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the data, especially like in Georgia, 80% of the people hospitalized with COVID are black. Yeah. So Kemp can open up the economy because, you know, they're black people dying. Right. Yeah, but uh, um, no, I, I I think it is, um, and and you know we certainly hope that the National Guard isn't sent out and and, and it doesn't start shooting. But <clears throat> um, you know I don't think today that you would have fifty eight percent of the people blaming the protesters and you know defending the guard. I don't think that would happen any longer. Um, people now know too much, and that kind of. Uh, uh, and actually Trump's a big reason for that, right? That rejection of authority, you know, uh, because that's, that's his, the, the, the whole basis of, of his uh, uh, political existence. Um, but this idea, I mean, the, the rhetoric and the, and the strategies are there, right? Outside agitators, elitist students, you know, I mean, you know, they didn't use the phrase coastal elites like Trump did in 2016, but that's exactly who they were talking about. And if you ever read accounts from like Ber uh, Berkeley or Columbia, especially, I mean, these are working class cops who are kind of like getting off on, on bashing the heads of these like, you know, uppity liberal, smart ass condescending kids. Rich kids. Yeah, it's kind of understanding. I mean, I don't approve of it, but you kind of see where they're coming from. And it's just like when people, you know, Trump's, you know, attack on elitism, 
which I think is like, I don't think the liberals understand that. I don't think they get how big that was and remains, you know, and, and um, I think they've dismissed it. And they, I mean, there's clearly it's racist. There's a lot of shit going on, but that hatred of elitists, of people who look down on you, who think they're better than you, who tell you what to do, who would rather listen to Tom Hanks and Oprah Winfrey, you know, I, that's a big deal. And, and it was in the seven, in 1970 as well, you know, these college professors, right? I mean, I, I don't have it in here, but there's a lot of talk uh, uh, by Rhodes and newspaper editors and op-eds about the, the professors at Kent State, professors all over the country who were, you know, like poisoning these, these young people's minds, these no good liberal professors. What, one of the quotes I saw from a Kent resident was like, let's start with the students and then work our way up to the faculty. Yeah. And in fact, you know, in, in that, in that press conference, uh, Rhodes does mention faculty, you know, we're going to, you know, they're, they're, they're at risk too. We'll get rid of them as well. No hearings, no recourse, nothing, you know, and they can't go to school or teach anywhere else in Ohio. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people at the time who just left school, people in grad school working on college degrees, things, they just left, uh, you know, uh, from Ohio State, from Ohio U. Uh, Ohio used to be, you know, a, a fairly affluent state with a decent higher education system. And now Ohio is basically a red state. Um, the, the amount of money spent on, you know, education is, is very low. Um, it's kind of remarkable that, that um, the governor has actually handled COVID quite, quite effectively compared to most places very effectively. Uh, but, um, you know, it's just been wiped out by deindustrialization. And so, um, it, you know, the kind of ideas that Rhodes expressed are not out of the tradition of this state. You know, there was this brief, you know, in, in a sense, a golden era when the senators were, you know, Howard Metzelbaum and John Glenn, who were both actually quite liberal, you know, and Dick Celeste was a governor who was a liberal Democrat. So there have been periods, but for the most part, Rhodes, you know, he was governor four times, 16 years as governor. This is the this is the state of Woody Hayes, you know. If there's like a, a state icon, it's Woody Hayes. Right. So, uh, uh, what happened at Kent that day? On the other hand, I mean, I, I've talked to people who were at Ohio State, you know, in, in May, who said, you know, Woody Hayes was actually just grabbing kids, you know, and saying, "Get out of here, you're going to get hurt." So, uh, there there was more than that going on. But yeah, I mean, most people said, yeah, you know, the kids had it coming. They shouldn't have been out there and the guards were, you know, their lives were at risk because they were getting rocks thrown at them. And, you know, I point out that these kids were 300 and some feet away who were killed, you know, and the guard didn't know what they were. They didn't know anything about Kent State. They shouldn't have been there. Uh, they were a provocative force in the first place, you know, and that whole thing about there were 15 businesses going to be burned down and all that. You know, just, it, the, the other thing that Rhodes said was that the, 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 the ROTC building was like a five or $10 million building. Yeah, it was an, it was a Building. It was an old field hospital that didn't yeah. get sent to the Pacific, and it was basically wooden and fallen down. It, it was an old wooden building. Yeah, yeah, that's that's preposterous. Of course, no, it was an old. The, the other thing I did read is the students actually did have a hard time getting the fire started to burn it down. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it was multiple attempts before it actually. Happened. Oh, I'm surprised. I figured it would have gone up with like you know a flick, you know, flame because it was it was an old right rickety building. I mean, I've been to Kent State, and there's, I mean, there's still a battle for it. It took forever just to get. Um, uh, a stat, you know, a plaque put up, and I believe there's a dorm now at one of the spots where I can't remember what exactly happened, but there was a big fight over over that. 
Um, I mean, obviously, the, the people who run Kent State would rather downplay it, uh, but that's not possible anymore. Uh, so, yeah, how, how do people in Northeast Ohio feel about it now? Um, well, I mean, younger people, not so much. Uh, you know, I grew up, I, I've mentioned this before, in a, in, a, in, a, in a different kind of house, you know. Uh, my dad was a union president. My dad opposed the Vietnam War. Uh, and so... Um, they always thought that was insane. You know, I think it scared them. You know, I have older siblings, you know, who were going, going away at the time. And so uh, they were appalled by it and terrified by it. But I also know people who, you know, blame the students and, you know, my sister went to Kent State and those kids should have never been out there. So um, if you talk to older folks, I think, you know, there would still probably be, you know, I don't know if it'd be 58%, but I would still think that a lot of them would still, you know, you know, kind of give you this revisionist history that they were snipers or they were shooting or they somehow were Molotovs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about M1s versus, you know, uh, throwing tear gas canisters back at, at the guard. So and some rocks and bottles. Yeah, and who knows how much. Uh, but yeah, it's, and, and, you know, like I said, the, and there's, I mean, you can look at the pictures, you know, they're all over the internet. There's, there's a gap. There's never a face-to-face confrontation. I mean, yes, you know, whatever it was in Michigan, you know, these, these insane people are literally like in the face of these cops who are wearing, the cops are wearing masks, but these people aren't right. And nothing happened. You know, they didn't do anything about it. Whereas it can from like, you know, hundred yards away, hundred meters away, they started shooting. And, and, you know, and that's clearly there's, there's a whole issue that, that stands by itself. You know, if you, if you're defending the interests of the states, you can get away with anything. And if you're questioning the interests of the states, then, you know, you're, you're literally risking your life. Um, You know, you know, if, if that had been Black Lives Matter activists or, you know, if the people at Standing Rock had fired, you know, or, or aimed guns at the, at the guard or, or if you on one of your uh, environmental actions, you know, uh, you know, somehow pose some kind of threat, they'd gun you all down, you know, without thinking twice about it. Oh yeah. Well, I will say, I will say this, that one thing the police have done since Kent state is they have moved into they're They're more militarized, but they're, they're way more prone to use these like non-lethal weapons. And so you see like rubber bullets and beanbag guns and like, uh, you know, uh, pepper spray capsules yeah. and things like that. So that um, they're not just firing live ammo into these thi- into crowds, but but like how long are they going? to, I mean, and they spend a lot of money on that too. They like get yeah. you know cuts from the Pentagon budget for that. But yeah. it's it's uh, they're they're way worse. <laughs> it's a it's a much more militarized force because we've gotten bigger. Like you said, we've gotten bigger popular opinions against them on many things and and we're more effective i mean not that i actually feel like shutting down 1300 campuses i wish we could do that right now um yeah. but but like but like there is there is as far as like tactics go we're, we're effective in a lot of ways that they don't expect well you know it's going to be interesting i'm a, you know i'm a professor and you know got an email yesterday that that the university of houston the texas schools are planning on going back face to face in 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 the fall. Um, it's only April. We have no idea, you know, what the, what the uh, trajectory of, of COVID is going to be, but um, we were not consulted, you know, obviously about this. Nobody cares what the faculty says and faculty Senate is an absolute joke anyway. 
Um, but you know, uh, and 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 the reason they they've given, you know, of course they mentioned football, right? It's Texas, you know that. Texas A and M, the the chancellor at A and M mentioned, we, we will have football games. Um, but you know, these universities operate on this corporate model now, hand to mouth, so they need that tuition money. In, in August and, and again in, in January. But, you know, I teach in, in rooms with 300 students and after class is over, it's a pigsty and, you know, low wage workers come in. Uh, they're subcontractors too. The university shifted away from like actually employing them to getting them from services. So they're not giving them benefits or anything like that. And they're cleaning up after 300, you know, filthy kids. And then they have to clean the bathrooms and they clean the dorms and you have frat houses and dorms and, and there was no thought given it. So my, my point here is that I, I'm wondering what's going to happen on campus in fall. You know, if these students are going to say, Hey, you know, this, you guys are putting us at risk. And I have colleagues who are, you know, uh, you know, older, they've had health issues. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting. I think you could see, you know, probably not 1300 campuses closing, but I really think you could see a resurgence of, of student activism as well, because, um, you know, I mean, and, and this was kind of the vibe in the late 60s. People were fed up, you know. I mean, it's easy to kind of look at the state and the violence the state, you know, uh, inflicted on Cambodia, on Vietnam, on Kent State. But uh, there, we were actually already starting to see a wave of like student activism around labor issues before the before the pandemic as well. Like we've, you know, had UC right. strike organizers on the show before. And, and so like... That is, I, I actually feel like with Wildcats and these like sort of like, you know, protests for like health safety and things like that, that we're seeing that, that, you know, that's, it's not that far away. Um, I do want to say real quick folks that you're listening to Scott Parkin and Bob Bazenko on green and red. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we are growing uh, in those areas, and you will learn a lot more about what we talk about if you follow us on those social media channels. And if you want to become a patron, you can come to patreon.com backslash green red podcast. And then we also now have a way to uh, for folks to take donations, or excuse me, not take donations, give donations, we take the donations. Um, and I'll be sharing that URL soon on our, uh, on our, uh, uh, social media channels as well um yeah let me just say one thing too uh and you know if you listen to us we've actually covered like a few themes really kind of extensively so um you know we've had five or six shows on covid right uh we've had public health officials and activists and people from italy uh where scott and i are doing kind of a history of liberalism um, we've had several activists on, Scott Crow, Jasmine Araujo, and, and Lisa Fithian, and Jay Conroy. So, you know, within, you know, Green and Red Podcast, there are these subsets, which are really useful. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I think is important is to give you not just like information or something to be angry about, but also some practical ideas about what you can do. And there's a lot of stuff that we've talked about with some really awesome people. I mean, Scott Crow and Lisa Fithian are really you know, all longtime activist Jay Conroy. And then you have Jasmine, the stuff they're doing in Southern Solidarity is really inspiring. And, you know, anybody anywhere can do these kinds of things. And we're going to, we'll talk to labor people. Um, we're, you know, we want to talk to people from Amazon and, you know, wherever. So um, there's also a lot of practical uh, education to be had here as well. 
So I just want to kind of throw that in for ourselves, you know, blurb ourselves. Because uh, I do think that, that there's a lot of podcasts out there and it's hard to be different. Uh, but I genuinely, you know, think that we are. Um, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, one other thing, and I, I don't want to go into this too much, is that, um, you know, I think it, it, Kent State is one part of a much, much larger movement, the, the Vietnam anti-war movement. And, uh, you know, I think it's worth looking into that, too. We, we can't spend a lot of time on it here. But, um, you know, there were millions of people participating uh, in some way or other uh, to resist the war in Vietnam. And it started small with students. Uh, you know, in 1964, you started to have teachings on campuses, the first rally sponsored by SDS in 1965, had about 25,000 people, which thrilled them because they thought they'd be lucky to get a few hundred. And then, you know, you started to have these much bigger uh, demonstrations like the, uh, the the March on the Pentagon and the mobilization and the uh, moratorium. Uh, and it wasn't just students and hippies and all that. Uh, it was, you know, by the time you have the moratorium and mobilization, you're, you're seeing people in suits and, uh, you know, middle-aged people, men and women. Vietnam vets. You know. Yeah, you know, that's, oh, huge. I actually yeah. studied that quite, quite, quite closely. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, the, the VVAW, Veterans Against the War, was considered the second most dangerous group in America after the Black Panthers uh, by Hoover and the FBI. They knew how to use guns, which terrified uh, uh, the, the, the government. And so, I mean, I think that's important to remember, too. It's, you know, it's, it was a large, broad-based movement. And, you know, I'm not going to get into a debate on how effective it was or anything like that. But... Um, you know, people did go out and, and did what they could. And that's the thing, you know, whether it's May Day or some kind of protest, um, especially under, you know, in the, in the, in the time of coronavirus, you know, you do what you can. And, um, you know, you don't have to, to, to try to be heroic. You know, it, it may be calling up a friend and talking about what's going on, you know, trying to talk somebody uh, <laughs> My crusade in Ohio lately has been trying to tell people not to vote for Trump. I don't care if you vote, just you know, just don't vote for Trump. So, and and the other the other the other piece of the sort of like resistance, if you don't want to go into streets, is you can donate to like groups resisting the bosses. There's lots of uh, resources out there, uh, and also lots of groups doing mutual aid in their community. Yeah, mutual aid and mutual aid. I mean, there's there's this idea of distance, but mutual aid work is probably you know you're less likely to get you know, beaten up, but yeah, donate food, you know, just find out if there's a mutual group, uh, mutual aid group in your area, but the, yeah, they're, and that's important. I mean, you know, saving people lives is, 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 is incredibly important as we're seeing right now, because you have a government that, you know, had no interest in that. Um, so I, I feel like we're getting to the end of our time here. Yeah. Do you have any last words you want to say about Kent State as we wrap it up? Um, you know, I just think it's important to remember it. Um, you know, uh, there's something to be said for historical memory. I'm not really sure there are lessons to be learned from it, but um, uh, you know, what we talked about at the beginning, I think might be the most important thing. We're living in, in very dark times, but um, we have before. And as, as horrific as, as Donald Trump is, and I don't even want to imagine another four more years of this, but um, it's, it's not unique. This is what America is, and I'm not saying that as a way to encourage you to go out and hate America. That's up to you. But be aware of what, what it is and don't romanticize certain parts of the past. Or, uh, you know, Trump is not a monster. He can be, he can be taken on. I mean, the, and I think that's the, the, if there's anything that comes out of this. You know, you can take these people on. 
and and they need to be be challenged, you know, uh, as much as possible. And Kent State was a tragedy, and let's hope that that doesn't happen again. But um, sadly, it's it's likely the state uses violence all the time. I mean, that's what they're doing right now. These COVID deaths are deaths of state violence to a large degree. Right. Yep. All right, folks, you've been listening to Green and Red. Today is the 50th anniversary of the the killing of the students at Kent State. Thanks for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Become a patron at patreon.com, Green Red Podcast. Go forth, stay safe, and raise a lot of hell.